from Wisconsin Public Radio, it's Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in La Crosse. Thank you very much for tuning in today. We are talking about uh, uh, utilities, power utilities across the state, and particular uh, rate increases that they have requested, including XL Energy uh, in the La Crosse uh, listening area. And we'll talk about what those increases uh, have been requested, uh, what level they've been requested at, uh, and and why, and, and a little bit of uh, background information, uh, courtesy of the Citizens Utility Board here in Wisconsin. Joining me is the executive director of that organization, Tom Content. First of all, Tom, welcome to Newsmakers. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, first of all, tell me a little bit about the Citizens Utility Board. Is it best described as like a, a consumer watchdog? group or or how do you uh how do you categorize yourself that way that's a good way to describe it we're a nonprofit and nonpartisan independent consumer advocate so we're a nonprofit organization and we're a consumer advocate for all the utility customers uh that are who are residential farm and small business customers in wisconsin okay and, and so we're we're there as the voice of the people when to make sure there's balance uh, and that the customer's voice is heard anytime there are decisions made about our monopoly utilities. And you do uh, not just press releases, but but blog posts and social media uh, videos and all kinds of information about the different activities regarding utilities uh, in, in Wisconsin. And that's how this came to my attention, your recent blog post on the proposed uh, utility rate increases, and in particular, an article that the La Crosse Tribune wrote about that. So, so uh, credit to our friends at the Tribune. Uh, for uh, highlighting the topic and uh, bringing up an opportunity to talk to you. Uh, as sort of a bird's eye view, uh, talk uh, about like what you're, what you're seeing in terms of, of the, the uh, rate hikes that are being requested uh, across the state. Sure. Well, what we're seeing right now, in, and utilities just filed proposals uh, in the last few weeks, and across the state, we're looking at about a half a billion dollars of new uh, increases that are being proposed. Um, and that um, comes on the heels or just after um, prices went up January 1 for many for many utility customers on the electric side. So so that's we're in a challenge. And part part of what happened is we had such incredible uh, run up in both the price of uh, natural gas as well as the price of coal for the utility for our utility coal plants um, over the last year. Uh, and now uh, in these new, so that as a result for last year, we saw increases across the state um, on bills in January that ranged from about you know, five to 11%, depending on the utility. Um, and now we're talking, uh, now the utilities have more proposals, proposed increases in front of the P Public Service Commission um, to the tune of a half a billion dollars. So uh, half a billion dollars, and that is across uh, across a bunch of companies statewide. Uh, here in Correct. southwestern Wisconsin, people will mostly be – now, we're not talking – for the purposes of this conversation, we're not necessarily talking about uh, like, uh, like the cooperative uh, – uh, uh, organizations like in Vernon County or in elsewhere, uh, we're talking Correct. about the we're talking about as your as your publication put it the investor owned uh, utilities which would include Excel Energy in our area. What what is Excel's uh, increase request look like? So Excel is increasing is seeking to increase electricity rates by nearly five percent. That's four point eight percent, 
about a $40 million increase. And then, uh, which, uh, which as well, they're also seeking a natural gas increase, which on the local portion of your natural gas bill, which would be uh, $9 million or about five, just over 5%. How does that compare? You said uh, everybody uh, pretty much just made increases already in January, just several months ago. Uh, how does this compare to last year's increase? So this is this actually is a little bit lighter than last year, at least for as to Excel, and and Excel's increase isn't as isn't as high as some of the other proposals right now. Um, we have two other utilities, Madison Gas, Madison Gas and Electric, and Alliant, which is uh, also known as Wisconsin Power and Light. In south southern Wisconsin, are seeking two-step increases over the next two years, and they're they're looking at more on the range of seven um, percent for MGE and up to uh, for over fourteen percent for Alliant. Um, we uh, it's going to be a busy year at the Public Service Commission because um, there are so many cases and so many proposals to raise rates at the same time. So when when a company makes a request uh, like this. Is that the the fine, likely to be what the final number looks like, or are there? Do you already know they're asking for a highball number, and the the final is def is almost definitely going to come in lower than that, or how does that usually work? Well, it is kind of like an opening bid, um, and and generally when the by the time the public service commission finishes reviewing the, these these requests, the 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 final number is 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 lower than what's being sought and so the job of the, the utility regulator the public service commission as well as cub as the as the, uh, as the consumer advocate because we have in-house economists and experts that are going to be diving into this um so our job is to find the areas of savings that can bring it down from the from what's being proposed so that by the end of the year we're hoping that customers that the as a state we're not looking at a half billion dollar increase so this th these proposals that have come in over the last few weeks are uh, are, are basically it's a request uh, for the increase that would take effect at the beginning of next calendar year. That's correct. Yes, and so then and then the cases take most of the year to to proceed, and essentially a lot of the work happened from here happens behind the scenes where the the P public service commission actually has a staff of auditors that go through all these proposals and ask detailed questions about, you know, basically telling utilities will justify why you're, why this number is, is so much higher than the last time. It's in, in a variety of categories. And we do the same thing. We don't have auditors per se, but with our economists, we're looking at areas where we can see savings. And one area where we already see the potential for savings is in Pairing back the profit, uh, the profits that the utilities are making and have been making because they've been making uh, far too much for far too long. Okay. Now, up to now, you've been talking uh, about um, uh, basically factual details about uh, about uh, how a company might request a rate or what rate is being requested. Now you're saying that yeah. they've been making far too much, uh, which is somewhat of an editorial statement. So why don't you explain uh exactly what you mean by far too much sure so so basically and and we are the advocate so we're we're basically there as the advocate for the for the small customers sure. yep and and for and for fairness and, and one aspect of fairness is to making sure that there's balance but um obviously these utilities have shareholders they have a fiduciary responsibility to you know to try to grow their earnings for their shareholders but 
but every time they grow their earnings, that that causes cost pressure on Wisconsin customers. And across the state, our electric rates are second highest in the Midwest um, here in Wisconsin. So that's one of the regions we focus on the profits. And when I said they're they're um, been too high, it's because our profits have exceeded um, the national average for you know utilities around the country. Um, and then we our economy our lead economist has. Uh, pointed points in his work to uh, evidence uh, and studies around the country that show that custom, the utilities are seeking way too are seeking too much and they're that even the profits that they're already getting are much more than they need to raise capital on Wall Street. In other words, they're getting they're already getting too much. They're seeking more, um, and custom and the study from the Berkeley Business School found that. The customers across the country are overpaying by billions of dollars every year just on the issue of these high profits. And so that's an issue we want to focus on, um, especially with in the Excel case, because in Excel's case, um, they actually are trying to increase their profit rate uh, from 10% to 10.25% in this case. And so the profit, there are a lot of judgment calls that, the, that a public service commission has to make when deciding a, a rate case um, and they have discretion on on deciding what that profit rate should be. So these companies are not necessarily, it's not necessarily like they're in some sort of financial distress and they suddenly need to uh, raise rates by this much in order to be profitable at all. It's more a matter of they're, they're going to raise rates, uh, they're going to make a profit. It's just a matter of how much profit they're going to be allowed to make. That's correct. I mean, it, the way the system works is that the PSC, you don't want the utilities to have so to, to you don't want the utilities to fail um, and go out of business because it's a monopoly utility. So that, you know, what would happen if a utility were to fail? That would be that would not be good. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want things to be so out of whack on the other side that they're that they're uh, basically too enriched um, on the backs of the customers. And just looking at the profits that the utilities made last year across the state, uh, the four the four main utility companies um, in Wisconsin, just their profits alone were over one point three billion dollars just for one year last year. Now we talked about uh, this uh, our conversation today. These rate increases are uh, basically uh, on behalf of of the uh, investor owned utilities. Uh, in, in other words, the the uh, the corporate uh, utilities and not so much the co-op utilities. Do co-ops have a similar process that they that they go through? Are they are they regulated in a similar way? They have a very different process. Uh, we do get questions from co-op members from time to time um, concerning their their bills or concerning, um, in particular, the high fixed charges that they that appear on their bills, so-called meter charge or customer charge. But under state law in Wisconsin, the Public Service Commission regulates only those investor-owned utilities. So those are the utilities whose parents are traded on Wall Street uh, with, you know, on the stock market. And then also the municipally owned utilities. So communities that own their own um, power company, whether that's the likes of which include Shawano or Manitowoc uh, in different parts of the state. But the main, so the for the co-ops, the, they have to answer to their members. Each co-op has to answer to its own members um, as far when it, uh, in terms of the 
who gets to be on the board of the co-op and 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 as far as how it's really a member a member communication between the co-ops and the members is, is how is the is a process of how the rates are set for for those this uh, may be coming out of left field do you know enough about typical rates among among co-ops uh, throughout Wisconsin to know whether those uh, rates between these uh, publicly traded entities and, and, and local co-ops uh, are somewhat comparable? I don't know specifically on co-ops, but just because um, one of my sources that I've used over the years when I was a journalist covering the utilities and still rely on it um, is there's a, a comparison tool of, of for electric rates for various utilities in Wisconsin, but, but that only compares the municipal utilities and the um, investor-owned utilities. Um, my my educated hunch is that the the bills for um, the co-ops are going to be lower than the investor-owned, just because there there isn't that extra layer of profit. In other words, the, a co-op isn't looking to make a profit, just as a municipal utility isn't looking to make a profit. And what we've seen around the state is that um, if you compare, say, you know, some of the Wisconsin Excel and some of the other Wisconsin uh, publicly traded utilities with the municipals, a, a municipal utility customer generally pays uh, 30% or more or less uh, per month than, uh, than the investor owns. So a person might be listening to a conversation like this, and uh, the fact that their power bill is going up d- doesn't come as a shock to them. Uh, and uh, the natural inclination is, uh, I don't like that. It's going to be more expensive. But how can somebody look at this rate increase or any other uh, increase in their utility costs and determine for themselves whether they should think it's reasonable or not? If if this if they're listening to this conversation and saying those guys are are talking Greek, like how do they how do they make sense of it and judge for themselves? Uh, whether an increase is reasonable or unreasonable. I mean, you raise a really good point. This is really complex. Uh, this can be complex and a bit wonky at times. But what what we're trying to do at Cub is is educate people that there 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 are a lot of issues going on that that people do need to care about, um, and we want people to be more involved in the. And so we're encouraging people to participate, whether that's weighing in the, the public hearings later on this year or uh, in public comments on the PSC website. Uh, on the PSC website, uh, once that once that process gets going, that's um, not really at that stage yet. But I think what we're that's one of the reasons that Cub exists, though, is to bring a voice to the customers that don't have one um, today or don't don't have the time or the or the to to participate. So we are able to with a team with a uh, team of economists and an attorney, uh, we're able to. We have a small staff of six, but we're able to. Um, have the in-house expertise to really um, understand these issues and help communicate uh, what we think is going to be fair for folks. Um, and w- what what will happen later on this year is is prior to the public hearings, everybody essentially will put their cards on the table. So the PS the results of the PSC staff audit will be out. So you will find out exactly what kind of cuts are being proposed by the PSC. We'll have our arguments on the table regarding profits and other issues. Um, we'll have we'll be weighing in on, um, you know, how how the uh, the impact of these increases for uh, for low income customers can be dealt with. 
Um, and so that uh, it's going to be, it's a process, um, and it's it's it it does it does uh, it may feel like Greek, but it's something that where we think that the more there's participation in what we call energy democracy, the better results we're going to get from uh, the the state the state overseers of the utilities. I'm looking at sort of kind of like the top line snapshot uh, that uh, that was that was in your blog post, and I, I'm going to give a, an opportunity uh, in a moment for you to uh, to let people know where they can find uh, your your information for themselves. Uh, but it's it's basically uh, the the graphic that shows the overall uh, rate increases uh, for the the previous fiscal year and or calendar year and and that upcoming um, and. Right. And uh, it shows XL as you mentioned with the uh, with the the total uh, proposed rate increase, uh, the overall rate increase uh, request of seven point eight percent. But then it it shows uh, uh, multiple utilities that that request uh, a couple years at a time. Uh, what's the what's the difference there? Why do why are some people making requests for twenty four and twenty five, while others are just making requests for twenty four? That's, oh, that's a really good question. So um, for Madison Gas and Electric and Alliant, I think part of it is they wanted to spread the cost, spread out the, the impact of the increases, but also it's because one of the a lot of the reasons for some of the increases we're seeing right now are the additions to the uh, of new solar plants in the or in the, in some cases some new natural gas plants, um, and the they go into rates at a specific time so they you have to actually build the project for in for it to actually come in and it has to be helping keep the lights on if you will before you can charge your customers for it if mm -hmm. you're a utility and so and that's why those other ones are phased in whereas excel is um maybe not at the point in its its building plan building program where it it has the, a second phase coming in in 2025. So just taking one of those, and our listeners might not be as familiar with these with these names, but in the case of Alliant, requesting like 8.5% for, for uh, 2024, and then an additional 5.5% for 2025, speaking in, in, in rounded up terms, um, yep. is there a chance that they could come back and say, regarding that five and a half percent for 2025, just kidding. We really need that to be eight and a half too. Um, no, because the, the PSC is, has, is trying to send a message, um, to stay that utilities can only come, come in every other year for what's called a, a, a full rate case. Um, and so if Alliant, whatever decision Alliant is made for Alliant this year, um, will hold for for next year as well. Um, the only exception to that is they they can still update one one item, which is their fuel costs for the next year for the following year. But overall, um, overall, we're, one of the things we're seeing and and that's a challenge right now for both the PSC and for for active uh, organizations in this area like CUB is that we have all five uh, utilities uh, in front of the PSC right now and. The, right now, the Public Service Commission is is wants wants the uh, utilities to go back to uh, what had been the norm for about thirty years, which is uh, that utilities only come in if they need increases. There, they should be coming in every other year instead of every year. Um, and so, uh, starting next year, 
the PSC has uh, sent a letter to all five of these utilities saying that starting next year, um, we want to be they want to be back on an every other year cycle. So in the case of Excel in in the lacrosse area, they would be in for a rate increase this year. They already are, um, but they would not be expected to come in next year. And and that would they would they would the PSU sending a signal that please don't come in next year because we're going to be busy with other cases. Okay, and and uh, one more comparative question about uh, about uh, some differences in how these companies are making their requests. Uh, you see Excel uh, with a request of of seven point eight percent. Uh, for the year, and then and then uh, you see uh, WPS with uh, with what looks like a decrease uh, next year of two point one percent. With with all of these companies coming and asking for all of this money, uh, how is it the WPS doesn't need an increase? Well, it's it's it is kind of interesting because uh, we don't see that too often actually. So uh, and what's um, what's going on there is WPS is seeing about a $10 million increase attached to some of their new projects like new solar and solar solar and battery storage projects that are being built. But on the other hand, um, they're starting to see the results of having uh, of having more um, uh, of, of having more renewable energy and other and for uh, for other reasons, their fuel costs are actually coming down. So the, the an advantage of solar, um, which is why we're seeing so many proposals being, so many projects being built and seeing so more being proposed, is that when the sun shines, there's no fuel cost. Uh, when the wind blows, just as when the wind blows, there's no fuel cost. So the commodity costs attached to coal and natural gas will, are going to go down uh, for all these utilities as they ramp up on the renewable side. And so and, and that's one of the one of the advantages that the utilities have been touting, um, including XL and all the utilities. And in this case, it just shows that that's actually happening, but it's happening for WPS at this moment and not quite happening for the others yet. And if people are interested in boning up on the subject matter uh, uh, ahead of the availability of those public comment opportunities, uh, where can they find more information about CUB and, and uh, about your analysis? Sure. No. So our website is um, a good resource, as is our YouTube channel. So cubwi.org is our website, and we have uh, blog posts there and more information about both Cub and what we do. Um, we have uh, uh, a link there to sign up for our newsletter to get updates uh, by email. And then we actually we also have a podcast, and we had we discussed the rate increases on our, one of our recent episodes called Cub Tracks. And so that's available on podcast channels, and it's also available on YouTube with the at uh, CubWI, youtube.com slash at CubWI. So a uh, bunch of resources there. We're look And certainly if there are community groups that want or, you know, Rotary Clubs or uh, Chambers of Commerce or neighborhood associations that want to find out more, we're available. Um, we're, we're hoping to be, uh, we're hoping to, educate more customers uh, because one of our missions, we have two main missions. One is advocacy for the for the small customers, the residential and small business customers. And the other mission is to educate. And so we, we have resources on our website on saving on your energy bills, but we're also available to come do public presentations on saving on your bills and, and where we, and where we 
like to come out around the state to talk about that and get input uh, from the customers about what they're seeing on their bills. That's Tom Content. He is the executive director of CUB Wisconsin, which is the Citizens Utility Board uh, of Wisconsin. Tom, thank you very much for spending some time with us on Newsmakers today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And of course, we uh, reached out to Excel Energy, uh, who has many customers in our listening area. And uh, they haven't uh, been in touch with us as of this recording, uh, but we'll be happy to bring you their comments if they're if they're able to get in touch with us uh, in the near future. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. Uh, if you'd like to hear a previous episode of the show or part of this conversation you might have missed, you can find them all on our website, which is wpr.org slash newsmakers. That's wpr.org slash newsmakers. We're back in just a moment here on Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. From Wisconsin Public Radio, it's Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall. Early in the last school year, UWL alumnus Truman T. Lowe was honored when the Fine Arts Building on campus was renamed in his honor. It's now called the Truman T. Lowe Center for the Arts at UW-La Crosse. And ahead of that renaming, we talked to someone who knew and worked with Truman Lowe uh, a lot and wrote a book about him, in fact. Dr. Joe Ortel is the Nystrom Professor Emeritus of Art History at Beloit College. She's author of the book Woodland Reflections, The Art of Truman Lowe. And we talked to Joe about her friendship and her professional association with Truman Lowe. And here is part of that conversation. He was... Um a sculptor and an installation artist in a sort of avant-garde modernist kind of vein. Um, And he worked primarily with wood, both natural sticks and branches, and then also uh, lumber. Uh, So he was making sculpture and uh, installations that were um, about both his Native American, his Ho-Chunk heritage, and also the natural environment of the upper Midwest. He really considered himself a woodland Indian. He grew up up in the Ho-Chunk community outside of Black River Falls, um, and he was surrounded during his childhood and youth by the traditional uh, arts and crafts that the Ho-Chunk made for the tourist trade at that time. So it was He was surrounded by crafts and arts and using one's hands. And he was also fascinated with drawing. So his uh, public school teachers even gave him the opportunity to use his, um, to use their um, classrooms when he was on study halls. So that gives you a sense that he was always kind of drawing, but it wasn't until, I mean, he didn't go to UW-La Crosse with the idea or the intention of becoming an artist, he really kind of floundered, if I can say that, for several years and and tried out different art or different majors before he settled on art education. And um, once he once he became an art education major, he experimented with all kinds of mediums, uh, printmaking, sculpture, ceramics. He did all sorts of things, and he really uh, sort of thrived in that in that environment. Um, I'm trying to think what else here. 
Well, what, I'm I'm wondering. Uh, you said that he he was involved, uh, and and I've read elsewhere that his parents were involved in 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 making handcrafts, you know, for for sale for tourists and and things like that. Um, and uh, he was a, a very uh, very deep and serious uh, artist that that we all have come to know. And you know, touristy stuff. I mean, you make stuff for tourists because it's what they'll buy, not because it's what speaks to you as an artist. Uh, how, how did that uh, process of making those things uh, for the tourist trade uh, uh, influence his art? Like, did he go the direction he did artistically to kind of get away from that? Or was there still an element of that incorporated in his work later? Well, that's a, an excellent question because he really, while he was at UW-Lacrosse, he really sort of was experimenting with all sorts of Western Eurocentric kinds of avant-garde um, art styles. And um, he sort of left his Ho-Chunk crafts and arts behind for a while. Um, but then gradually, as he found himself, as he matured as an artist, he, um, after graduate school and after teaching a few years, he realized that he really, as I said, was a woodland Indian. And he started um, drawing on his images and the history that he was taught as a child and at the Indian mission outside of Black River Falls. So it, it wasn't so much that he rejected the arts and crafts. In fact, he revered, he really was a champion of all arts and crafts of Native Americans. Um, even though his work was really in a kind of modernist Western fine art vein, he was always um, very happy to see traditional arts and crafts by Native Americans as well. You talked about his art being in, in a more of a Western vein, and, and that reminded me about um, in a lot of disciplines, not just art, but in academia, there there is this this Eurocentricity in a lot of the art that is sort of academically approved or that is considered high art, whether it's in, in visual art or in theater or in music or in a lot of these things. Uh, did, did he have to kind of uh, defend his own artistic voice as he tried to bring more of his heritage into it? Um, I don't think as he brought it into his work, no. Um, that's another really interesting question. It was always, and I've been working on my remarks for Monday's ceremony, and I'm having trouble, you know, talking about what's the difference between arts and crafts and fine arts, what he did, and those traditional Ho-Chunk arts and crafts like basketry and beadwork and that sort of thing. Um, he, he kind of saw the two as being on a continuum. He wasn't concerned about categories, except that he did understand that we, human beings, and art historians, especially, I have to say, that we really like categories. We like to put things in boxes, as he said. And so um, he was always interested in kind of expanding popular conceptions of what Native, contemporary Native American art looked like, what it could encompass, so that he drew upon those Native arts and crafts that he grew up with and other tribes' uh, arts and crafts as well, but then he also was interested in contemporary art, in non-Native influences as well. So he kind of melded or intertwined the two in his artwork. 
Now, I'm curious about about uh, your knowledge of, of him and awareness of his work. When did you first become acquainted with Truman Lowe's work? Oh, gosh, that was about 23 or 24 years ago. I was teaching in the art department at UW-Madison, and um, I was teaching a modern and contemporary art history class for them. And it was the end of a spring semester and I was exhausted and I didn't want to give any more lectures or, you know, prepare any more talks. And so I invited artists from the art department to come and give talks about their own art. And Truman was one of the few who graciously agreed to come and talk to my class about his own artwork. And that was my first introduction, really. And I was just mesmerized both by the artwork, the imagery, the sculptural forms, and then also his, the way he spoke about his art. He was really thoughtful and he sort of gave his artwork a number of layers. So it, there were a number of ways you could enter into it, if you will. And that was the beginning of our friendship. And it was shortly after that that I decided I wanted to write about him. And I thought I could write a book about him in a year or two. And he always used to tease me about that because it actually took 10 years for me to fully understand both Wisconsin art, Ho-Chunk art, Native American art, and his own influences as well. Well, when you so were, really, yeah, when was, you, you were, your, your book is called Woodland Reflections, The Art of Truman Lowe. You talked about how long it took you to write it. It is, um, when you start actually putting pen to paper and deciding, you know, how, how, how much to describe of him as an American artist, uh, and as a native American artist and as a Wisconsin artist. And how, how do you see all of those intersectionalities melding together to create him? Oh gosh, it's, it's not easy. And that's one of the 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 challenges for me, I think, um, he really, you know, he moved very fluidly between his Ho-Chunk heritage and his background and then the university setting and his academic career. And then later he worked as a curator of contemporary Native American art at the Smithsonian's new National Museum of the American Indian. And he he was he always sort of moved fluidly through all of those. So the challenge for me really was, how do I talk about all the influence influences of his work um, and let them all sort of speak without kind of narrowing him down or pigeonholing him, really? You can find uh, any number of, of videos, uh, short and long clips of Truman Lowe talking about uh, his work online, and I have and it's it's interesting because he doesn't he doesn't strike one as as being unconfident in himself but he really is quite soft spoken and unassuming in in the way that he describes himself and his art what was that like to try to get him to open up in a way that you could actually uh that you could actually then turn into a written work about about his uh, output well that's that's really interesting because I remember the first time he invited me out to see his studio where he was working out in Middleton. Um, I didn't really prepare that many questions. I just thought, okay, I'll see what bubbles up. And he was very, um, not reluctant, but he was very 
short on words. He didn't, didn't give me a lot. And I think he was sort of testing me. He wasn't sure that he could trust me really. Um, so it, it was at the beginning, it was kind of a, a challenge, but then as we got to know each other, um, it really, it's, I sort of fully understood his ideas and he did open up much more as we got to know each other. You talked about him incorporating um, different kinds of wood, both lumber and like like found like sticks and 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 different things in in his work. Um, it, it, did he always work in in those media primarily? Well, that too is is fascinating because when he was at Lacrosse. He was working in ceramics. He showed a bunch of ceramic eggs that were very brightly painted that looked kind of like pop art or, you know, they were kind of funny. And uh, then when he was in graduate school at UW-Madison in the early 1970s, he was working with sheets of plastic, literally sheets of plastic. Um, and of course, this was the early 1970s and plastic was the latest, hottest medium material for artists, modern artists to be experimenting with. Um, and it was only later after he did a stint teaching in Kansas at Emporia State College that he um, kind of returned to the natural materials of the Ho-Chunk, and particularly of his parents. His father made these exquisite wooden basket handles, and his mother made uh, these splint plat baskets that were just exquisite. So he sort of returned to those roots as he matured as an artist. How how was that uh, that stint in Can Kansas that you mentioned? It, he seems to have kind of realized a lot about about who he was by moving away from who he was for that period of time. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. He really, um, he was, I wouldn't say he was distressed about being on the plains in Kansas, but he realized, he said he, he often said he discovered he was a woodland Indian um, and he liked being surrounded by the bluffs and the uh, rivers and, and freshwater streams of Wisconsin of the upper Midwest. So that really was kind of a, a realization that he came to um, as he was, while well, he was down there, they were only down there, I think for one year, um, he was teaching down there, but he realized that he needed to come home. So it sort of cemented his identity with, within himself in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. And to go back to your earlier question, when you were talking about that, he was very unassuming. He was, he had a, a great sense of humor, kind of a goofy sense of humor. But one thing that was, that was particularly enticing to me working with him was he didn't take himself too seriously. In other words, he was always challenging himself. He was very serious about his art and he'd been very thoughtful about his art, but he had he also loved to play. So he really um, kind of, he did have a, a strong sense of himself without being arrogant or egotistical. He was quite the opposite, I have to say. Most of his career, he was a teacher. He studied art education. He was a professor at UW-Madison uh, from, from where he retired. Uh, talk about Truman Lowe as a, as a teacher and, and uh, what role he played in the artistic uh, lives and development of his students. 
Well, as you can imagine, he taught, I think it was 35 years at UW-Madison. So he touched a number of um, students at UW and, and he really mentored a number of students. I think what students say about him the most is that they felt that he gave them uh, freedom to find themselves. So in other words, they would come up with, students would come up with an idea and he would help them figure out how to realize that idea without kind of saying, now you have to make, you know, a horse out of clay or something like that. Um, he was very much about helping, guiding, um, but with a very subtle hand, his students. So it was kind of a, a light touch as, an, as a teacher um, with artists uh, or student underrepresented students and particularly Native American students, he was very, um, he was a very active advocate and champion of um, bringing recruiting Native students to UW-Madison, um, other underrepresented art or students to UW-Madison. Um, he was really very committed and that was largely, I think, because his family, as he was growing up, he was told by his much older sisters and brothers that he was the one who was going to be going to college um, to, to UW-La Crosse. And he, um, he had a number of mentors while he was at UW-La Crosse who really uh, sort of helped him along and really gave him great support. So he always, as I said earlier, he always saw that as um, something that was very important, particularly for Native American students. Once you're thrown into a big university setting, it can be overwhelming. Um, but he, particularly at UW-Madison, as a professor, he really helped to create um, a supportive, nurturing uh, environment for Native American students, which was pretty spectacular. Education was his passion, and particularly uh, education for underrepresented students. He um, not only was uh, a teacher for so many years, but he also uh, was an active curator uh, of of exhibits. He he took some time uh, uh, away from his teaching, in fact, to be very involved uh, in that uh, with with the Smithsonian. Uh, I'm I'm wondering. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, as he had opportunities uh, to to curate exhibits of of his contemporaries, of of other uh, other Native American artists, uh, how did he tackle that endeavor? Well, that's that's fascinating too. He was at the Smithsonian uh, for several years before the National Museum of the American Indian opened in 2004. And then he was there for about four years after it opened as well. Um, and he he was invited to uh, assume that position as curator of contemporary art there. And he really saw it as an opportunity where he could introduce, you know, the hundreds of thousands of museum goers who go to the mall in Washington, D.C., go to the Smithsonian. He really felt like he could introduce uh, all those visitors to a broadened kind of conception of what contemporary Native American art could look like. So instead of just uh, being po portraits of stoic Indians or being an Indian on horseback, that kind of thing, or the traditional Native arts and crafts, he wanted to see, he wanted general museum visitors to see the broad expanse, the, the possibilities of contemporary Native American creativity. And he went with, with gusto to that. He had a number of artists that he was interested 
in exhibiting before he got there, um, artists from the 20th and 21st century. And he put together some really powerful exhibits of people like Fritz Scholder and George Morrison, um, Alan Hauser, and then contemporaries, his own generation of artists like Kay Walking Stick and Sean Quick to See Smith and a number of other artists. So it was a very important um, curatorship, if I can say that. Now, since uh, since Truman Lowe's uh, passing, uh, you've been involved in in uh, making sure that even more people get to be exposed uh, with his art. You you work with his family uh, to make to make sure that some of his works uh, that more of his works are are added to museums collections. Talk about that that process. How how do you how do you uh, uh, introduce yourself to these museums and and explain to them the opportunity that they have uh, to bring these works into their collection? Well, to be completely honest, it's kind of an easy sell because his reputation as an artist uh, precedes him. He did not sell many works during his lifetime. He was more interested in making art and he didn't he, he had a livelihood at the university, so he didn't have to make money from his art. Um, so he wasn't really particularly interested in selling works to museums during his lifetime, although he did, let me be clear. Um, the Denver Art Museum has a beautiful, absolutely exquisite waterfall that he made, again, out of wood. Um, but since his passing, and particularly in the climate we're in right now, um, museums are finally understanding that they need to uh, represent the broad diversity of artists. So not just white men, white male artists, but really to look at women artists, artists of color and Truman's art because it is, um, because it has a very unique but universal kind of aesthetic and appeal. He is uh, being, he's being very well received, I should say, by museums. So for example, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago has uh, bought a couple pieces. The Metropolitan Museum in New York has bought pieces, or one piece, I should say. Um, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, as well as the National Museum of the American Indian, have also bought a, a number of works. So his work is going, Boston Museum of Fine Arts, St. Louis Art Museum, museums of national reputation are really sort of finally understanding that uh, his work is important and needs to be preserved and collected. In in looking at his work, uh, as you have uh, through throughout uh, throughout his career, but especially uh, now in in uh, in terms of of his now being part of history, um, do you notice common threads? Are there are there themes in his art, or are, is there are there things that he was trying to communicate through his art? Yes, very much so. I would say his native heritage um, was one, and then respect and reverence for the natural environment, the natural world, were his two primary concerns. He was, a lot of his sculptures and drawings are about water, moving water streams, that's freshwater streams. And um, that was a subject that he returned to over and over again. And in fact, in the Metropolitan Museum in New York right now, one of his signature pieces, it's called Feather Canoe, is included in an exhibit, a very timely exhibit, about water, um, the politics and also the aesthetics of water. 
So that's really, I mean, his his work is very timely, very contemporary. It's uh, modern and American as much as it is Native American. The um, our our time is uh, unfortunately coming nearly to a close, but I I want to ask you about uh, about his legacy. Um, how is there a way to sum up the legacy of? Of, of someone uh, like Truman Lowe, who is, as, as you talked about, multifaceted and, and, and very deep in, his, uh, in, his, uh, in the reflective nature of his work? Well, that is a hard question, and that's why I think I've been struggling with my remarks for Monday's ceremony. Um, I think his primary uh, legacy is as a Native American contemporary artist. He really helped to broaden our perceptions of contemporary Native American art, both in his art and then also as a curator. And even in his teaching, when he supported uh, and nurtured those Native American artists, young students, uh, he was really thinking about the future of contemporary Native American art, of Native American art in general. So I think his legacy is sort of a combination of his artwork about Native American heritage and the woodland environment and then also his teaching and his curating um, in a similar vein. Dr. Joe Hotel is the Nystrom Professor Emerita of Art History at Beloit College. She's the author of Woodland Reflections, The Art of Truman Lowe, and we've been talking about Truman Lowe here today on Newsmakers. Joe Ortel, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Joe Ortel talking about her longtime colleague and friend, Truman T. Lowe, for whom the Fine Arts Building at UW-La Crosse is now named. It's now known as the Truman T. Lowe Center for the Arts. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. If you'd like to catch this episode again, you can find it online along with all the other programs that we have done over the years. It's wpr.org newsmakers. That's wpr.org newsmakers. Our producer is Kate Spranger. Until next time, I'm Ezra Wall. Please join us again next week for another Newsmakers right here on Wisconsin Public Radio. 